So uh, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here at Mount Tabor. And most of the year, you're going to hear me up here preaching. And uh, so uh, that, that's me. I'm really glad that you are here today. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I hope we get that opportunity after service when you bring me your connection card. So um, also want to say a welcome to everybody who's watching on Facebook Live today. We know that you'll probably watch several times before you'd ever consider coming in person. We want you to know that we're okay with that. Uh, if you have any questions about Tabor, about uh, something you hear in a sermon or why we do things the way we do, feel free to send us a Facebook message. We'll work through that with you. So uh, for everybody, I want to start this way. One of my favorite shows to watch is called Chef's Table. It's on Netflix. Anybody ever heard of Chef's Table or watched it before? Yeah, it is an absolute favorite of mine, and I love all of the episodes, but my favorite episode is the very first one. It's, uh, it's the, the, uh, the story of a man named Massimo Boturo, and I, I love that not only because I sound really cultured and cool when I say Massimo Boturo, uh, but also because it's a really great story. So I want to tell you a little bit about Massimo this morning. In 1995, he opened a restaurant in Modena, Italy called Osteria Francescana. My culture level is rising. I can, I can feel you just being really impressed with me right now. I have now said all the words in Italian that I know. So, yeah. Anyway, in 95, he opened Osteria Francescana, and his goal was to make new versions of classic Italian dishes and to reimagine Italian food. And so he opened this restaurant. Uh, he is a world-renowned, famous chef at this point, and he opens this restaurant in Modena, Italy, and people hate it. I mean, they just hate it. Let me tell you why they hated Osteria Francescana, because Modena, Italy was recognized, is recognized as an epicenter for classic Italian cooking. So I want you to think lasagna. I want you to think meatballs. I want you to think pasta. I want you to think Parmigiano-Reggiano. Is anybody else getting hungry? By the way, Mama Rosa's is going to be busy after church today. Uh, anyway, so they, they have this restaurant, and they are reimagining all of these classic dishes. And, and the reason people hate it is because in Modena, recipes are handed down from generation to generation to generation without being changed. And so in a city where consistency in these recipes is paramount, he opens a restaurant where all the recipes are changed. This would have been considered the height of disrespect. And in fact, Massimo Baturo was on the verge of having to close his restaurant when he finally caught his break. Here's how it happened. The most famous restaurant critic in all of Italy was traveling from one city to another to do a restaurant review, and he gets stuck in traffic. He gets stuck in traffic to the point where he says, I can't make it to my destination for my reservation at this restaurant, and I don't feel like traveling late into the night, so I'll just call and reschedule for that restaurant tomorrow, and I'm going to stop in the next town I can find and stay here for the night. And so the next town he pulls into is Modena. And he checks into a hotel, and he goes on a walk to find a restaurant to eat dinner at, and he stumbles across Osteria Francescana. And he says... 
Might as well try this place. And so he walks in, and he is amazed at the food he has served, and he is just dazzled, and he forgets all about the rest of his trip, and he goes back to his hotel room, and he writes the most glowing review of this incredible new restaurant, and all of the sudden, people from all over Italy are trying to go to Osteria Francescana, and then food critics from all over Europe, and then food critics from all over the world. And a few years later, this restaurant is recognized as one of the 50 best restaurants in the world. And a few years after that, it's recognized as one of the top 10 best restaurants in the world. And then it's recognized as one of the top five restaurants in the world. And then in 2016 and 2018, Massimo Boturo's Osteria Francescana was recognized as the best restaurant in the world by restaurant magazines considered the authority in this field. I bring this story up for a a specific reason. The interviewer was, was letting Massimo Boturo tell this story of how his restaurant came to prominence. And he asks this question. He says, you know you were in Modena. And so in these two years when your restaurant was struggling, barely staying above water, why didn't you just change your menu? Why didn't you just serve the people the food they wanted to eat? You know they wanted lasagna. You know they wanted spaghetti. You know they wanted Parmigiano-Reggiano. Why didn't you just change your menu? And here's what Massimo Boturo said. He said, tradition doesn't always respect the ingredients. Tradition doesn't always respect the ingredients. Here's what he meant by that. He said, you you can make lasagna the same way every time. It will be delicious, assuming that your recipe is delicious, right? your recipe is no good, then it's going to be bad every time. But but if you have a good recipe, then you can make lasagna the same way every time, and it will taste delicious every time. But at some point, you're going to stop thinking about the tomato. And you're going to stop thinking about the important role that the tomato plays in making lasagna delicious. At some point, you're going to stop thinking about the sausage. You're going to stop thinking about the cheese. At some point, you're going to stop thinking about that corner piece in the pan of the lasagna where it gets just a little bit crunchy and it's so delicious. You guys know what I'm talking about? That crunchy piece in the pan of the lasagna? At some point, you're going to stop thinking about that because tradition doesn't always respect the ingredients. And I bring that up. I bring that up because the song we're going to study today was sung by a man who lived in a world where tradition didn't always respect the ingredients. His name was Zechariah. His name was Zechariah. We met him last week when Mary left Galilee to go stay with her cousin Elizabeth. She stayed with Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. Zechariah. And Zechariah was a priest. If there's ever a profession where the sentiment, tradition doesn't always respect the ingredients rings true, it was the Levitical priesthood. They do what they do because it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, I got to be fair. I got to be fair to the Levitical priesthood. They do. They do what they do from generation to generation to generation because God told them to do it that way. But at different points in the history of the priesthood, it stopped being about obeying God and it started being about honoring tradition. And it's into this landscape that God says, I'm about to do something completely new. So here's what happens. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11. 
while Zechariah was in the sanctuary. He was a priest. He was doing his priestly duties. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you will name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And they will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How? How can I be sure that this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. By the way, if you need to describe your wife and you don't want to call her old, just saying, turn to the Bible. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. You want to know how this will happen? I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You will be silent and unable to speak until this child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. God is about to do something completely new in this world where tradition doesn't always respect the ingredients. Let's get a little bit of context on what we just read. Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest. In the world of the priests, this was an incredible, incredible blessing. And here's why. The priests had a demanding schedule and an awkward lifestyle. It was a difficult job physically, mentally, and emotionally. And it was hard for people to grasp that. So when a man would marry a woman who didn't understand the demands of the priesthood, it was difficult for them for a few few years until she learned their new routine. A priest could be spared that if he married the daughter of a priest because she grew up in that atmosphere. She grew up in that environment. And that's what happened to Zechariah. It was a huge blessing. Maybe the way we would understand that today would be uh, military families. So a young man or a young woman grows up in a military family. Mom or dad is a soldier, sailor, airman. And uh, they're used to a change of station every couple of years. They're used to a deployment, and so that lifestyle is familiar to them. And if that young man or young woman marries a soldier, then they're not going to be surprised when life changes every several years. They're not going to be surprised when there's a year-long deployment. They're not going to be surprised when they have to pick up and move away from their friends because they are familiar with that lifestyle. And that's what's happening here. Zechariah marries the daughter of a priest. And so that painful learning curve is significantly lesser. And for them, the community would have rejoiced. The community would have been so happy for them. They would have said, behold, Zechariah is a godly man and he has married Elizabeth, the daughter of a priest. What a blessing for them. And the community would have rejoiced. But at some point, all of that rejoicing 
turned to grief because Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't able to have a baby. And all of the joy that the community felt for them turned to grief and sorrow. And Zechariah tried, and Elizabeth and Zechariah tried and tried and tried, and they couldn't have a baby. At some point, eventually, all that pain solidifies into acceptance. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they stop trying to have a baby. They're happy with each other. They love each other. They love their lives, and they've accepted the fact that they won't have a baby, and it's into this context that the angel Gabriel comes to them and says, you will have a baby. And a lot of people are hard on Zechariah here. They point out his lack of faith, and they criticize him, but I get it. Does he display a lack of faith? Sure. But understand that Zechariah's instincts are to protect himself. His instincts are to protect his wife so that these old and painful wounds do not get reopened. So when the angel says, baby, instead of saying, praise God, Zechariah says, how? I get why Zechariah asks that question. Here's the problem. He's being influenced more by what he's experienced than what God is saying. He's influenced more by what he's experienced than what God is saying. And maybe you feel that way too. Maybe life has thrown trauma at you and it's hard to trust people. Maybe your family doesn't forgive or forget and so it's hard to understand that your God does. Maybe your dad wasn't a great person and so when somebody talks about God as father, it doesn't make you feel good about God and it doesn't make you feel good about yourself. Get it. Experiences are powerful things. Powerful things. In fact, the only thing in life more powerful than experience is what God says. And so for just a moment, I want to take some time to tell you what God says about you. What God says about you, no matter what your experiences are. Here's what God says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a whole new person with a whole new life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are totally and completely forgiven. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a citizen of heaven. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You. All of the experiences you bring into this room, you are greatly loved. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You are adopted into God's family. And so here's what I need you to know. God is either saying these things to you right now or he desperately wants to. So if he's not saying those things to you right now, he desperately wants to say them to you. So how do you become a part of God's family? How do you become a, God, a part of God's 
family. If God says all of those things about His family, how do you become a part of His family? So it's a, a few days after Elizabeth and Zechariah give birth to their son, and uh, Zechariah breaks out in song. He breaks out in song, and the, and the words of his song are going to help us answer that question more clearly. How do you become a part of God's family? Listen. Zechariah says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell His people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to all those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. How do you become a part of God's family? Well, let's look. Zechariah starts by saying, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited us and remembered, redeemed his people. Our adoption into the family of God starts with God. It starts with God. He visited us and his purpose was redeeming us. His purpose was restoring us. His purpose was adopting us into his family. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of His servant David just as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. That mighty Savior has a name and His name is Jesus. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. I want to talk a little bit about enemies. Let's talk about enemies for just a moment. When we read about enemies, it's, it's easy to have something pop into our mind. And, and for many of us, when we think about enemies, we'll probably think of like foreign powers or terrorist groups or a drug cartel or something like that. It's easy to have something pop into our mind when we think of enemies. But that's not what Zechariah is talking about here. He's talking about a different kind of enemy. And we know because in verse 74, this is what he says. We have been rescued from our enemies so that we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. So if he were talking about national or political enemies, he wouldn't say that we could serve God in holiness and righteousness. So what we find is that, is that uh, Zechariah is not talking about a national enemy. He's talking about a spiritual enemy. He's talking about a spiritual enemy. Zechariah is saying that Jesus the Messiah is coming to save people from the enemy of sin and death. So the question becomes, how do you do that? How do you save somebody from sin and death? Do we do it by, by throwing all of the, the drug dealers and human traffickers and murderers in prison? 
Is, is that how we save the world from sin and death? Certainly, that would save the people who were addicted to drugs or enslaved to, to human trafficking. But those aren't the only people who are affected by sin, and those aren't the only kinds of sin that people commit. So how do you rescue the world from the sin of lying? How do you rescue the world from the sin of jealousy or anger? How do you do that? So all of a sudden, sin isn't something that another law is going to solve. And the scope of people needing to be rescued has changed dramatically. It's not about people needing to be rescued from sinners. It's about sinners needing to be rescued from their sins. There's a big difference between those two thoughts. So Jesus can't just come down dressed in SWAT gear and throw all of the sinners into prison because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not as simple as it initially sounds. So how do you rescue the world from sin and death? Let me tell you what Jesus did. He allowed himself to be born in a little hay trough in Bethlehem to pretty good parents named Mary and Joseph. And he lived his entire life allowing himself to be subjected to life in a sinful world, to the hardships of temptation and sin. And in all of this he did without ever once sinning himself. And then instead of accepting the praise of his father for a life well lived, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of accepting that praise, he takes the punishment for all sin. So what he deserves to hear is well done, but what he instead hears is crucify him. And as he hung there on a crude wooden cross, Jesus was being punished for my sin and for your sin. So that in the same way he was punished for something he didn't do, we could be rewarded for something we didn't do. And now when we realize that we need to be saved from sin, the only thing we have to do is turn to Jesus. It starts by admitting that we have sin we need to be saved from. I know that for some of you that's an uncomfortable thought to say, I have something in my life that I am powerless against and I need help but turning to Jesus starts by admitting I have something in my life that I am powerless against and I need help Jesus came to help we admit that we no longer want to live that way we no longer want to live in a life that is controlled by our sin and then we are baptized Peter says a little later in the Bible that baptism isn't it isn't the removal of dirt from the flesh. Instead, it's an appeal to God for a clear conscience through Christ Jesus. So when we're baptized, what we're saying is, I am a sinner. And I want Jesus' penalty to apply to me. So that I can be forgiven. So that I can be restored. So that I can be redeemed. I'm a sinner. And I want Jesus' penalty to apply to me. We have been rescued from our enemies. 
so we can serve God without fear in holiness and in righteousness for as long as we live. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. The birth of the One who would save mankind from sin and death. And that's the first thing Zechariah does. He erupts in praise for God's glorious plan of redemption. For the arrival, for the soon coming arrival of a Savior who will save the world from sin and death. But as he closes out this song, his focus shifts ever so slightly. And instead of talking directly about the Savior, he starts to talk about his son's role in God's plan to save the world. Here's what he says. You, my little son, I love that note of affection that he has for his newborn son. You, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sin in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Zechariah's son, John, he's, he's not the Messiah, but he has an important job. He is to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's to point people to Jesus, to help people who are living in darkness to see that Jesus is the light of the world, and ultimately this, to tell people how to find salvation through forgiveness of sins. And that's our job too. That's our job too. Whatever else the church does, whatever else good that the church does, we must never forget that our first priority is to help people find forgiveness of sins and salvation. And I know, I know, I know, I know that not everybody is ready to get up and preach a sermon or, or, or teach a Sunday school class or, or lead worship. And some of you are going, Tony, you're not even prepared to preach a sermon today. I, I get that not all of us are prepared to serve in, in some of those ways. What, whatever. That's fine. What I want to tell you is this. Everybody who is a follower of Jesus has something to say. Everybody who is a follower of Jesus has something to say. Let me show you. I want to go back to, to Zechariah before he broke out in song. You may remember that Zechariah questioned the angel Gabriel, and he said, how, how are we going to have a baby? I'm old, and my wife is advanced in years. She's not old. She's advanced in years. I'm old, though. And, and so he said, how are we going to have a baby? And Gabriel said, you have got to be kidding me. I am an angel that came directly from the throne of God, and you're going to ask me how this is going to happen? It's going to happen because God is God. But if you want a sign, that's fine. Here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak until God's promises have been fulfilled. And so Zechariah gets quiet. And he gets quiet. Uh, eight days after John is born, there's a circumcision ceremony for the baby boy. And during this ceremony, the priest who is presiding would have said, what is this boy's name? And because Zechariah can't speak, it normally would have been his job to respond. But because he can't speak, Elizabeth says, his name is John. And everybody in the crowd would have gone, wait, what? What did she say? They say John? Because everybody would have thought his name was going to be, you know, like Zechariah Jr., or something ancestral. And so you can almost imagine the priest going, wait a minute, 
Elizabeth, you don't have any Johns in your family tree. Is that, are you sure that's what you want the boy's name to be? And the people in the crowd are going, well, if Zechariah could speak, he would definitely, definitely straighten this out. This is getting out of hand. We need to get Zechariah. And so Zechariah hears all of this, and he's frustrated, and he, he gestures for a tablet and something to write with. And on the tablet, he writes, his name is John. And when he says that, his voice returns, and he says, his name is John. And I know that not all of you who are in here today may be ready to stand up and preach a sermon or teach a class or lead worship or do all of these different things that you can do. And I want you to know that's okay. But I also want you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have something to say. And like Zechariah, what you have to say may only fit on something this size, but whatever you have to say, you say it. And so maybe what you have to say today is this, that Jesus saved me from my sin. If that's what you can say, then say it. Say this. Or maybe what you have to say today is this. God is changing me every day. Through the power of his word, through his people, through his Holy Spirit, God is changing me every day. If this is what you have to say, then say this. Or maybe as you think about the birth of the Savior at Christmas time, the only thing that your soul can come up with is thank you. If this is what you have to say, Say this. Or as you think about God, and as you learn more about God, you can only grasp that He is good. If this is what you have to say, say this. Or maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with something else. Maybe what you need to do is say this. I need Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to have the worship team come back up here, and I, I want you to know that, that all of these different signs are an expression of worship. They're an expression of worship in different ways. And I want you, as we get ready to close, I want you to worship in whatever way that you are feeling today. I want you to worship in such a way that you express the emotion that you feel. So if Jesus has saved you from your sins, then praise him like he has. If God is changing you every day, then praise him like he is. If your soul is saying thank you, give it voice. If you know in your heart that God is good, then express it in song. And if you need Jesus as your Savior, let your worship be the courage to come forward and admit it. Let's stand together. And if you, if you need to talk about making Jesus your Savior, then let's meet here or meet out in the lobby and we can baptize you today. But right now, let's praise God together.